Okay, so some background here. Um, the Corinthians lived in a place that was very active with pagan worship. This wasn't like a, a town in Israel where the primary religion was Judaism. This was out on the outskirts. This was a different place in the Roman Empire. The primary religion was paganism. They worshipped all sorts of different gods. And there would be oftentimes sacrifices to those gods, kind of like how Judaism would also sacrifice to the true God back in those days. These people would sacrifice to a false god, and the whole activity of sacrificing an animal as well as selling it in the marketplace, as well as eating it, they attributed all of that towards worship of this false god. So somebody who was in this religion, by buying that meat, they were supporting that worship. By participating in eating that meat, they were participating in the worship of this false god. And so it was all wrapped up in this idea of worshiping this false idol. And so it becomes kind of easy to understand why a believer who gets saved out of that and is now shunning that part of their history, they no longer want to worship false gods. They want to worship the true and living God. Now they go to the marketplace and they're wondering, should I be giving money to this? Should I be supporting this worship? Should I be eating this meat offered to idols? What do I do? And so imagine that you grew up in that culture and you had those experiences and now you become a believer. And imagine even, even as you're smelling the meat being fried, you're having these memories of the times when maybe you worshiped in that idol's temple and you got caught up in that sense of worship towards this false. Like imagine you're going through all of that. And so now you've got Christians though that Perhaps there are Jews that came from other places, because remember, this is also during the time of persecution where Jews were being scattered away from Jerusalem. So now you've got possibly Jews that are in this church with Gentiles, and some are saying, it's just meat. What's the big deal? And some are going, no, you can't eat that meat. And they're trying to now exist together, and the question becomes, what do we do about this meat? Are we allowed to eat it? Are we allowed to buy it? Are we allowed? Is that participation? What is our role as, as Christians in this? And so he begins by saying that there is such a thing as knowledge that only serves to make one proud, and, there, and that true love is in contrast to this. So verse 1, when he says, knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies, or some translations, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up, that kind of thing. We've often maybe heard this verse taken out of context. Whenever somebody might say something like, I just feel like I want to know the Bible better, or I want to like understand theology better, or I feel like I want to, to know better what my salvation means, or I want to like study more about the Old Testament. I want to know the history of things. I want to study these things. So, ah, be careful. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And you might have heard that used often to say, don't study so much, as if there's this concern that if we learn too much, we're going to love less, almost as if love and knowledge are on two different scales, and the more you do one, the less you have of the other. But that's not what Paul is saying, and that's not what the Bible actually says about knowledge. It isn't like all knowledge is bad. I can give you some examples of this, just real quick. Ezra 7 verse 10 says, Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it. See, he studied to practice he studied the word of God so that he would know how to obey God. What can be wrong with that? 2 Timothy 2 verse 15. Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. So be diligent to know how to accurately handle the word of truth. 
1 Peter 3.15, Always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's in you. So it's not wrong to also prepare in advance and study to be able to have answers for the hope that's within you. Romans 12, verse 1. Or actually, 12, verse 2. I put the wrong verse down. Who knows Romans 12, verse 2? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Mark 12, verse 30. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. It doesn't say love God with all your heart and a little bit of your mind. As if you need to only do a little bit of one. He says, no, all of your heart. Love him with all of your passions. Love him with all of your strength. Love him with all of your mind. Love him with all of your soul, all of your abilities. John 17, 3, this is my favorite. This is eternal life, that they may know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. If all knowledge puffs up, then any of us who knows God is arrogant. Right? Ephesians 1.18, this is now Paul talking. Just so you know, Paul would agree with me here. Paul says in Ephesians 1.18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? Now, I don't even know what he means when he says that. I can't wait to get there and try to figure that out, but it sounds deep. And what Paul's saying is, I'm praying that your eyes will be opened so that you know this. And he goes into like the height and the depth and the breadth and the width of the love of God. He's excited about knowing more about who God is. So Paul is not saying here that all love makes arrogant. What he's saying is there is a certain way of handling what you know that can lead to arrogance, and love would be the opposite of that. That's what he's really saying. Notice how he says, too, we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. He's not calling himself arrogant, right? So it's easy to grab that one verse and go, oh, knowledge makes arrogant, love edifies. But Paul says, hey, we all have knowledge, and knowledge makes arrogant. He's warning them here. What is he warning them of? He's saying there's a certain kind of knowledge they already knew, He's not talking about gaining new knowledge and that being bad. He's saying, we all have knowledge. There's something that we know that could make us arrogant. What is that? It is the knowledge that idols aren't real, that they can't actually defile meat, and that we can't actually be defiled by eating it. That's the the plain truth of the matter. Paul says, look, we know what's really going on. All right, If you're going to ask me the question... No, it's not really technically a sin to eat this meat because we know these gods aren't real. Gods that aren't real can't defile meat. And so we can't be defiled by eating it. That's the real thing. But he says knowledge puffs up and love edifies. Let's go into verse 4. It says, therefore, concerning things, eating things, sacrifice to idols, we know, again, he's saying we know there's no such thing as an idol in the world that there's no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords on earth, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge. But some, and I like your translation better on this, but mine says, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. 
So he says in verse 1, we all have knowledge, talking to the church. And then he says in verse 4, we know there's no such thing as an idol and it's not really defiling this. But then he says, but, in verse 7, not all men have this knowledge. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, he's saying, he is taking a side. He's saying, if you're making me pick sides, I've got to be honest, there's technically nothing wrong with this. In and of itself, there's nothing wrong with this. That is true, but on the other hand, he says, look, not all men know this, and even though we have this knowledge, and even though we know it's true, not everybody understands this. He says, some being accustomed to the idol till, till now, and this is what I was mentioning before, he's, he's talking about those believers that might probably grew up with this understanding of what this all meant to them in this pagan religion, and now they're stumbled by it, and for them, they felt like it was a sin to eat of this meat. For them, it felt like they were, they were turning against now the true God. They were like turning back to their old ways. So even though Paul says, look, technically we know it's not a sin, he also acknowledges that it's a real problem for some people. And so now, how should the church handle this? What should the church's official position be on this? Remember, he started off by saying knowledge makes one arrogant, but love edifies. So the question is, okay, how do we hold this knowledge we have in a way that edifies the church and doesn't lead to arrogance and doesn't lead to stumbling other believers? So what I like is that the way Paul answers it, he takes the whole issue a whole lot deeper than they expected. They simply wanted to know, is it right or is it wrong? So imagine you've got a church, you've got these people that are eating meat and it's okay, and some don't think it's okay, and they're arguing, and they go, Paul, who's right? They just want to know who's right, right? It's kind of like you've got two kids arguing, one's right, one's wrong. They go to the parent, and the parent corrects whoever was wrong, and the kid goes, see? That's, I think, what the church wanted was the who is right, and the person not right should just suck it up and deal with it. That's, I think, what was going on, but Paul takes it a whole lot deeper than that. In the church, it's not about being right in this case. It's not about being on the right side of the argument in this case. It's about how can I edify the other person? How can I love the other person? I don't want to stumble them, so how can we exist together as a church and edify one another even if we can't agree on everything? It's not, how do I get them to see my side and agree with me? It's, how do I love them more? How do I edify them more? How do I build them up more? And that's where Paul takes it. Look in verse 8. Food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worst if we do, do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So he's saying there is a right position and that's all you care about. There's a right position. Sure, it's not a sin for you to eat this meat. But, so that, that's liberty. They said, but be careful with this liberty that you're not using that liberty to stumble somebody else. Well, how would this stumble them? If I'm not sinning, how can my not sinning stumble somebody else? I mean, if I'm not sinning and I'm righteous and I'm holy and God approves of my behavior and nothing wrong with what I'm doing, how can that stumble somebody else. And Paul explains it in verse 10. If someone sees you who have knowledge, so you are the one that has knowledge, you know it's not a sin. If someone sees you dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idol? Idols. So notice, there are universal sins. 
Can we agree on that? Don't steal. Don't lust. Don't kill. These universal, think Ten Commandments, right? There are universal sins that are not subjective to our experience. I don't care what Hollywood does by trying to get you into the life of somebody to help them understand why they did it and really sympathize with their point of view. There are universal sins, and in every case when God says, no, you shall not do this. Those are universal sins. But there are also sins of conscience. That's what Paul is getting at here. There are sins of conscience. For all of us, it's a sin to lie, kill, cheat, and steal. Lust, be jealous. Those, are all, those aren't sins of conscience. Those aren't just your truth versus my truth. Those are the universal ones. Those are explicitly called as sin in the Bible. But there are sins of conscience, which are more like things that might be a sin for one person, but not for another. And for the Corinthians, meat was this kind of issue. Paul is saying, look, for the person who grew up with this certain kind of background and they only associate eating meat with idol worship and they feel like if they do that, it's like turning back to their old ways, then for them it is a sin. It's not a universal sin, but for them it certainly is a sin. Now, how can we apply this to us in America? We don't have a lot of people going around sacrificing idols or sacrificing meat to idols, and you know, but we do have different kind of idols. In our, we are an atheistic culture. There isn't a generally agreed upon religion that's false in America that we're dealing with. There's atheism. There's agnosticism. There's all sorts of different religions. There's the religion of politics, which I'll call it that. Um, there's the religion of conspiracy. There's all these things. But there are some general gods that we have in our culture. For example, the god of entertainment, the god of greed which Jordan mentioned last week, I think, or the week before. Um, there's the God of independence. I'm going to do it myself. I don't need anybody's help. The God of potential and self-realization, where your main goal in life is just to do whatever you want to do, discover who you are as a person, and have others accept you for that. And that's your goal in life as the self-potential realization kind of thing. That can become a God. The God of image, the God of fashion, these are all things that our culture worships. The problem for us living here is that those, none of those things are actually wrong unless we're worshiping them. Nothing wrong with a little bit of entertainment. Nothing wrong with wanting to look nice when you go into a place with other people around. Right? Nothing wrong with that, right? Nothing wrong with liking music, for example. Nothing wrong with having ambition. Nothing wrong with trying to succeed in your career. Those things aren't wrong. The differences in the world, because they don't believe in God... This is all they have. And so they begin to obsessively pursue these things as a, a way of worshiping a false god to where, like, for example, if you worship entertainment, where you know, like, every single actor and actress and who they've married, when, what kids they have, and where they live, and what arguments they have, and, oh, that actor and that actor, and where you just follow this thing so, like, because that's all you have. And it becomes a god to you. As a Christian, we can enjoy those things. Nothing wrong with, I don't, I really, we can. We can enjoy, we can live here and glorify God and enjoy simple things. We can even enjoy wonderful food, even though food is a God to some people. We can enjoy those things. But imagine a new believer comes into our church, and let's say before they came to church, 
their entire life was wrapped up in Hollywood. I'll just use that as an example. And they followed everything. It was their entire life. And they recognized it. And for them, it's been a real sacrifice to pull away from those magazines and pull away from the news and all that. As they've decided they wanted to follow Christ stronger, it's been a real thing for them. And imagine they come into church, and at church, the pastor's just preaching about entertainment stuff, and everyone's like talking about entertainment stuff, and they're playing like entertainment rock songs before church, and the whole thing for some reason feels like, and so they go, well, they're all doing it, so I guess I can just go back to my old ways, because it's okay with them, and that could begin to stumble them. Smog machines and all that. Um, And it, it could stumble them, so they might think, hmm, well, maybe isn't that bad at all. I do kind of miss that. I'm a new believer. I miss the thing I used to follow. So maybe I'll go ahead and I'll buy one magazine again, or five, or 10, or 20. And all of a sudden, for them, it's easy to go back to where now this is all they're obsessing about because that's where they're from. And they've now, they've, they've lost, they were a new believer. And now they've kind of lost that first love. They've returned to this thing that for them was an idol, where for us, maybe it wasn't an idol. But by flaunting that liberty, obsessively, it stumbled somebody else. And so, um, in this way, our liberty as Christians can definitely stumble somebody else. And so, Paul says, be careful about our liberty. Be careful how we live our lives and what activities we're involved in. Because the truth is that something can be a sin, even if it's not technically a sin, if it causes somebody else to sin. That's the point that Paul makes sense. Uh, that Paul makes next, that we'll get into in a second. So um, there was a situation that happened once in this church that I want to talk to you about that I'm not going to mention names, but it's just so relevant because when it happened, I went through this chapter with those that were involved. It had to do with somebody who felt like yoga was okay for them and somebody else who definitely did not think yoga was okay. They didn't know each other that well, and they got together, and one person goes, oh, I'm just, I've been so stressed lately. And the other person goes, have you considered yoga? Just an easy, just a, you know, but just have you considered? And the first lady, you know, goes, no, I haven't considered. And she goes, well, I use yoga and it helps me with stress. And also the other one goes, that's worshiping Satan. You should not be involved in that. And all of a sudden it exploded and you had one person going, you're worshiping Satan by doing yoga. The other person going, it's not worshiping Satan and here's why. And it became this thing. And then they reached out to me. I tried to help them out. And what I did, I mean, both separately, I took them through this chapter and gave my view on it. And said, I want to meet now together with both of you to discuss this because it's a serious issue. We need to know as a church how to respond to these things. And they didn't really want to meet. And unfortunately, they both kind of ended up leaving. And I think it's because neither liked the way I handled that. And this is tricky. Both people, in my view, were right and wrong. At the same time, because of this sins of conscience thing, the person who thought it was worshiping Satan and evil, then for them it is a sin. For them to do yoga would then be a sin. That's, that's right. Where they were wrong, though, was in trying to enforce that view, which you can't prove biblically, on somebody else that's just stretching their body because it makes them feel relaxed. That's the thing. You know, the history of yoga, sure, it's all wrapped up in worship and Indian religion stuff, but these days you can have some yoga places that are really into that, and you can have some that are like just stretching for an hour on a mat and they go on with their day and it's fine. So the reason why they're both right and they're both wrong is because for the one person, it was sin for them. But where they were wrong was expecting the church to enforce a policy the Bible doesn't enforce universally on everybody. That's where they were wrong. On the other side, the person who practiced yoga, 
they were right to say it's not a sin biblically. It, it, to me, it was like this was a perfect passage for that because yoga is no different than eating meat sacrificed to idols in this context. It's like if you eat meat and you're worshiping a god while doing it, don't do that. If, you, if you're stretching your body and while doing it, you're chanting to some god, don't do that. But if for you, you're just stretching your body, it's not a sin. But where this person was wrong was in not recognizing this person's weak and I probably shouldn't have until I knew them better or if when I saw the red flag, I should have just stopped instead of trying to impose that and trying to then continue the argument. So that on both sides, it was like the, the, the main thing Paul says here is if something is stumbling to you, don't do it. Let somebody else know it's stumbling to you. And then that person, instead of trying to argue and convince you, no, you're wrong, become, be more mature, have the proper understanding of this. If it's just a conscience thing, they shouldn't do it around you or talk about it around you because it might bring up all sorts of stuff in your past that you're just not ready to deal with yet. And so that's, the, that's what Paul gets at here. I feel like that, that issue with the yoga thing was just so relevant. And I took them both through this and I said, look, Paul is saying exactly that. There's nothing wrong with stretching your body. There's nothing wrong with eating meat. The gods aren't even real. But if for you, if you're doing that as a way to worship some false god, well, then it is wrong. All right, so um, back to what Paul is saying. Even if something isn't a universal sin, and even if it's not a sin of your conscience, it could be a sin if by doing it you're stumbling somebody else. And that's what Paul is talking about. In verse 11, he says, For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ has died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. So Paul turns it around on the more mature believer, the one who knows better, the one who has the right perspective. And he says... The one who can freely eat meat, knowing it's not a sin, if you're doing that knowing it's stumbling your brother and causing them to want to return to a life that was fully sinful for them, then you actually are sinning, not just against them, but you're sinning against Christ, in verse 12. If you think you're mature, you should no longer be asking questions like, isn't this right? Tell them. Correct them. It's right for me. I've got liberty. You tell them, pastor. I'm right. You should be saying, Gosh, what can I do to not stumble that person? This is clearly something I didn't realize was affecting them. I didn't realize I was stumbling them. But now, like, what can I do to, to fix this and to help them and not become a stumbling block for them? It should be much, as a mature Christian, your perspective should be much more sacrificially about that person than about making sure that they know that you're right and you have the right perspective and the right position on the matter. <clears throat> your life should reflect how you consider others in the decisions you make. So verse 13, Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so I will not cause my brother to stumble. And this actually became the official church position at that time. That might answer your question better. Um, is he, at, at this point, uh, so there was a council of Jerusalem, Acts 15, they were discussing different things. They all went back to this council to figure out what are we going to require of Gentiles? Do they have to be circumcised? Do they need to follow the old laws? What should we require? And they sent this letter to the churches, and one of the things that they said to them was, um, don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. And so that's, that's what the official council decided. Even though it wasn't a sin to eat the meat, 
It was a sin to eat of it knowing it was going to stumble somebody else. And so the official church position at the time was, you Gentiles that are living in this pagan place, just don't do it. Because they're going to associate that with, with idol worship, and so you just shouldn't do it. Now, Paul isn't done with this issue, though. We've got chapters and chapters to read still. He'll, for example, he'll get more specific in chapter 10, where he'll say, look, the easiest thing to do is just buy your meat and eat it, and don't ask questions. He's like, because if you buy meat, and then they say to you, this will sacrifice to this idol, he says, then you shouldn't eat it. Or if you go to somebody's home, and they give you meat... Just eat it and be grateful. But if they say to you, here's this meat, which I've sacrificed to the God of whatever, then you can't eat it. So there Paul's saying, even though you shouldn't want to stumble your brother, the easiest solution is just don't ask questions. So when they say to all the, the Gentile churches, don't eat meat sacrificed to idols, Paul would clarify, in other words, if you know it's sacrificed to an idol, just don't eat of it. But to make things easier, just eat your meat and rejoice. Now in America, I think general consensus no one here thinks well, if you're doing yoga, you're worshiping an idol. If you can, if someone offers you meat, just eat it gratefully. If you buy meat, just buy it, just eat it, just don't, you know. But if they tell you it's offered to an idol, at that point, you've got to stand up for yourself and say, I don't, I don't worship false idols. In the same way, like, you know, so contextualize it. For me, being sort of in this heavy metal scene, if I go to a concert and I enjoy the music and I want to maybe, which I've done, buy extra tickets to try to give them for free and share the gospel with somebody. That's one thing. But if, I wouldn't go to a show where the bands playing are overtly worshiping Satan from the stage and getting the crowd to do things that are like worshiping this. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be part of that because that's, now you're forcing my hand on something. I can enjoy the music. I can pray for this industry. I can try to preach the gospel to it, but I'm not going to participate in something that could overtly cast me as somebody who's worshiping those things. And so we have to be careful about how we use our liberty. Um, and now in chapter 9, Paul's going to basically use himself and Barnabas as an example to say, look, we're apostles. We could do all sorts of things that we've chosen not to do for your sake. He's like, couldn't I be married? Couldn't I make money off of you? Couldn't I take donations and live a nice life? Wouldn't that be okay because the workman is worthy of his wages? But then he goes to explain how so much they've sacrificed for the church and he's using it as an example to say, so you too, stop thinking about how is this going to benefit me or how does this affect me or what are my needs and start thinking about what can I sacrifice of myself to give to somebody else so they can be closer to Christ. And that's the perspective he wants. He's basically, if you're the mature Christian, if you're the one who thinks you know things, that's where your knowledge should be leading you. It's not towards arrogance, not towards you, young Christian, come to my level and have my understanding and know that I'm right. It's more of how can I reach down to those people and just pull them up and help them into a, a stronger walk with God. And so I, so I love how Paul, he gets to the heart of the matter. They ask one question. He, asks, he answers a different question. You know, like he, they ask... Is it right or wrong? And he says, how are you going to build up your brother? It's a different question, but it's a more important one. And it reminds me of the story of the Good Samaritan. You've all heard the story of the Good Samaritan, right? The, the Samaritan, okay, so this guy gets beaten up and robbed, and he's left beside the road, and the Pharisee comes along, and a Levite also, and suddenly the Samaritan comes along and helps him out. But then what you don't realize is the context of that parable, the person asked Jesus, after saying, yeah, 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 love your neighbor as yourself, well, who is my neighbor anyway? Basically saying, I don't have to love everybody. I just have this little sphere around me. I've got to love them. And then Jesus gives this parable, and he ends the parable by saying, who was the best neighbor to that person? So that, his question was, 
who's my neighbor? And Jesus answers by saying, no, who was the best neighbor for him? And the point is, we shouldn't be thinking things like, what's the bare minimum I have to do? What's the bare minimum number of people I've got to love? What's the bare minimum? of? We should be asking, how can I be the best neighbor? How can I love that person more? How can I help them more grow in Christ? And I'm actually going to teach more on that next Sunday at the other at the combined service, I'll, I'll be teaching on the Good Samaritan. Uh, I think it's a really good thing to recognize that when we ask questions like, where's the line? How close can I get to the line? Or how much do I have to love that person? The answer back from God isn't, here's the line, or just do this. It's, how much more can you do to help that person? <laughs> Not, are you right or are you wrong, but how can you love that person better? And so that's how Paul answers this question. Is it right or wrong to eat meat? Am I not at liberty to eat meat? Paul, can't you just set these weak Christians straight? Tell them I'm not sinning? And Paul turns it on them. No, you're the mature ones, right? So you need to refrain from doing things that are going to cause them to stumble. You be the mature person. You be the one who's loving. You be the one who's seeking to edify the other person. Or like he says in Philippians 2, 3, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Let's pray. Father, I'd ask that this church, as we, as we grow in our knowledge of you, as we go through the Bible together, that you would not cause us to have a kind of knowledge that's arrogant towards those who have a less than accurate understanding of things. Help us to love them, pray for them, and yes, have great, pleasant conversations about perspectives and not shy away from discussing beliefs, but at the same time, let us not use liberty in ways that are going to be causing somebody else to want to revert back to a sinful lifestyle for them. Help us, God, to not be at fault for anybody falling away from you and getting back into their sin because they looked at our life and thought it must be okay for me too. I pray we'd be the kind of believers that care enough about others to not cause them to stumble. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.